many women perimenopause aside feel in midlife that they have the weight of responsibility upon their shoulders that their to-do list is quite a big one because you hit quite a big crossroads at that stage of life your children are possibly leaving home or you're realizing if you don't have children that you are now probably not able to have children so that's a grief some women have to deal with your parents are usually elderly and needing care you may be at risk of redundancy from your job because a lot of companies value youth above um, age and experience so it's a really overwhelming stage of life hi hurt to healing listeners and welcome back to season four with me pandora morris I can't believe it's been nearly a year since I started having these incredibly raw and honest conversations with wonderful guests from all walks of life about their own invisible mental health struggles. Those of you that have been here since the start will know that I myself have struggled with my mental health for many years and it was only recently that I started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to start this podcast to create a safe space where I could try and help some of you on your own healing journeys. This season is full of more fantastic conversations, and I hope that hearing these will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. On today's episode, I am joined by Lorraine Candy, an award-winning journalist, editor, and best-selling author who shares her transformative journey through midlife and the intricate challenges posed by the perimenopause. In a candid exploration, Lorraine unveils the psychological and physical impacts of this life stage, recounting moments of feeling overwhelmed and confronting unexpected stress. As a seasoned professional and devoted mother, she navigates the complexities of identity, enduring feelings of judgment, and the profound effect of sleep disturbances, providing a relatable narrative for women in similar stages of life. In our enlightening conversation, Lorraine underscores the importance of prioritizing self-care, urging women to don their oxygen masks before tending to others, a powerful metaphor for the journey through midlife. With a keen focus on debunking misinformation, particularly surrounding HRT, Lorraine empowers women to make informed choices about their well-being. Her latest book, You Are Not Alone, serves as a beacon for fostering understanding, vulnerability, and connection among women navigating the challenges of midlife. I'm going to start by asking you about your struggle with the menopause, and you've openly spoken about feeling quite overwhelmed in midlife. Would you tell us about your experience of the menopause, starting with the psychological and physical impact that it had on you? Yeah, I think uh, what we're talking about actually is the perimenopause, uh, which is something I didn't know about till I started to go through it. So that's the 10 or so years before the menopause. The menopause is a year after your last period. So average age in the UK is 51. But the perimenopause are the years leading to this when your hormones are wildly fluctuating. So you may have loads of estrogen one day and then none the next. You may have loads of progesterone one day and none the next. I had no idea this was going to happen to me in my mid to late 40s, even though I was a journalist and had covered women's issues. It just hadn't been written about the menopause. Yes, but not the perimenopause. So in my late 40s, sort of 47, 48, I started to unravel, I guess you would call it physically and mentally. I'd always assumed I was quite robust in the mental health area because I'd been there was no history of depression or anything like that in my family. And yet I started to have quite serious panic attacks 
on the way to work, on the way home. I was having horrific nightmares. I think they call it hag riding or night terrors, where you are, for all intents and purposes, awake and awful things are happening to you in in your actual bedroom. So you don't really know whether you're dreaming or not. Uh, Night terrors, in a way. I was incredibly tired. I would sit down on a Saturday and then wake up on the sofa five hours later. So all sorts of things were happening to me. And I was mentally, I called it the creeping sadness. I was just didn't really want to be around. I just couldn't work out what was the point of anything. And it's like an enormous weight dropped on you and, and you just can't lift it off any which way you, you know, and I tried everything. I tried extreme sport. <laughs> I tried learning new things. I tried lots of things, you know, cause I knew, I know exercise is a real key actually in any area of mental health, but it was having, it wasn't moving the dial for me at all. And I did some research because other women in my friendship group were feeling similar, maybe not quite so serious in some of the the ways, but were feeling pretty lost and similar. And as I started to look into it, I started to find out about the perimenopause and I started to find out about the huge misunderstandings and myths around hormone replacement therapy. And I'd started to interview experts because I was working on the Sunday Times at that point. So I had access to everybody in the world really to interview about it. And I found out about HRT. I had to go privately because my doctor had twice offered me antidepressants, which, you know, are very helpful for some, but wasn't, I knew were not going to be helpful for me. I thought I had a brain tumor as well. I thought I had something very seriously wrong with my brain because alongside it, I couldn't remember anything. I, I got into the car one morning and I couldn't remember which side of the road I was supposed to be driving on. So I had to go back, get out and come back into the house and ask. So it was quite a serious physical symptoms alongside the, the mental symptoms. But I had to go privately to get HRT and actually within two weeks, I was transformed. I was back in the room. It was just the most extraordinary feeling. It was as if someone had turned the light back on. I'd been in the dark for several years and suddenly the light was back on again. So for me, that worked. So I was just then perplexed as to why more women weren't being offered this. And I've begun this journey, which is a podcast and a book, to just get the message out there, really, just to talk to women, not to terrify them about menopause and perimenopause, but to say, this is what's going on. These are your options. And there are lots of things, apart from HRT, you can do because you lose your sleep at that point of life and you do become quite overwhelmed when you're not sleeping and you can't really make clear decisions. So it's been a bit of a journey in the last sort of four or five years, but I'm in a much better place as I've aged because I got the information I needed and that was always my mission to get the information out there. Thank you for sharing that incredible journey. And I'm so thrilled to hear that the HRT has worked and you're feeling in a better headspace now because I can imagine moments where you go, you dip into that depression and you feel like this is it. I've had my life and now it's all downhill from here. I'd never understood that feeling before. I'd done lots of stories early on in my career as a journalist on on women and domestic violence and women with mental health issues and homelessness, actually. So I knew about it. I knew about depression. I knew about the neurological side of it. I knew about all the science, but I couldn't quite ever get my head around the feeling that anyone wouldn't want to be here until I hit menopause, perimenopause. I just, it's such a physical thing and it gave me an enormous clarity, actually. And actually, we've interviewed... I think over 140 women in midlife on our podcast, and they've all had moments of this depression via their perimenopause or in in midlife and and talked quite eloquently about it. And I think it is a message we have to get out there. It's not just physical symptoms. It's a really serious mental health issue, perimenopause. It is. And actually, I am trying to raise awareness of girls who have had eating disorders because I became a menorrheic in my 20s and 
which means I wasn't menstruating. Mm. And I started HRT last year. And I can tell you something as well. I wasn't sleeping. I was feeling incredibly depressed. And I just put it down to, oh, well, I have depression. I have an eating disorder. I've got OCD. But actually, the hormones have just made a gargantuan difference to my mood, to my sleep, just generally to that sort of the color of life, really. Things have just started to bounce back. And I think a sense of femininity, which when your hormones are on the decline, just wanes away, I think. Well, I think hormones like testosterone as well, which is a complicated prescription in this country, but these hormones are missing or fluctuating. So they will affect your mental health. That's, you know, there is a, some research in the States being done on psychosis and estrogen. So it's really, really, <laughs> we have to take note of that. And we have to, when we see our health professionals explain that the mental health issues are as serious as the physical issues. You know, I've certainly had women talk to me privately about taking their own lives. And those very same women who've gone on HRT can't imagine months, moments later, why they would have ever felt like that. So there is still a misunderstanding around it and there's still misinformation around it. To deny women the chance to not feel like that, you know, I think is quite a serious problem. And, and it's, you know, that's why it has to be addressed. That's why we have to talk about it. You don't expect to have all these mental health issues in your perimenopause. You just don't expect it. Well, I didn't and I'm Gen X. So maybe I'm really hoping your generation of millennials will have the knowledge to know that they can get help and support around it and that it's a possibility they may feel like this not everyone will but many women do and I mean the really troubling thing is that it's all based on misinformation people's fear of HRT and there was that study that was published over 20 years ago and saying that there's a marginal risk that you might be more predisposed to having breast cancer if you take HRT and it was such a tiny tiny minority that it just well, it was I mean, a study done on women in their 60s who don't take the form of HRT that is now offered so it's largely irrelevant but the medical profession were very very scared of it and I do believe there is a kind of patriarchal attitude to women's pain we're seeing it in all other areas of women's health and women and their smear tests women and their periods women are consistently ignored or told you know we've been some really high profile cases recently of women with really serious gynecological problems who've been told that they just need to endure this pain and I think this HRT debate is wrapped up into this slightly patriarchal attitude towards women and pain and what we must endure and, and you know HRT is a preventative medicine there's very robust firm studies around its benefits for protecting heart disease heart disease is the biggest killer of women over 50 there are studies being done into its effect on dementia and Alzheimer's again Alzheimer's dementia really big killer of women so you know and osteoporosis that it's proven that it helps with our bone health so if you again if you <laughs> if you and you can take it for most of your life most women can take it forever so there is a preventative aspect to it that's not even talked about and it's really cruel to not allow women <laughs> the opportunity to try and see if it's right for them I believe I mean I do I, I feel quite strongly about it because I've seen the studies and I've talked to the experts how did you cope before you started doing the HRT with continuing to juggle your career, being a mum, when you just felt that you were ambushed by that inability to deal with stress, which you've spoken about on your podcast? When did you feel that you just couldn't cope anymore? I think many women, perimenopause aside, feel in midlife that they have the weight of responsibility upon their shoulders, that their to-do list is quite a big one because you hit quite a big crossroads at that stage of life. Your children are possibly leaving home 
or you're realizing if you don't have children that you are now probably not able to have children. So that's a, a living loss. That's a grief some women have to deal with. Your parents are usually elderly and needing care. You may be at risk of redundancy from your job because you've come to the end of your working life in a, in a company that most a lot of companies value youth above um, age and experience. So it's a really overwhelming stage of life. So I had realized that health aside, I'd have to really look at things that were helpful to me in terms of lifestyle. Um, but again, I think you go at such a pace, certainly my generation, we go at quite a high, fast pace as working women. And I came to the conclusion, I'm going to have to reevaluate this pace and this manicness, this busyness that can't be helpful for my nervous system or for my mental health. So I took, um, you know, and you have to remember, I have the privilege of being a white woman. I know it's a lot harder, especially in terms of health with uh, black and brown women who don't get the support or aren't listened to in the same way as we may be as well. So I had to sort of take a step back and talk to all the experts as a journalist, which is partly why we set up the podcast and said, what would be the things that would be helpful from a lifestyle point of view? And diet is phenomenally important. But the two things which were a surprise to me as helping regulate moods and, and having a happier time were loneliness is a killer. So staying connected to those around you. And often you don't want to be connected because you're depressed and, and you feel like you've got nothing to say. You're slightly ashamed of yourself because you can't remember anything. You're not as efficient as you used to be. So you sort of withdraw, but that's really, really bad for your health, all health, mental health, physical health. We, we know that from hundreds of studies of the blue zones around the world. So loneliness, oh, what was the other thing? Oh, sleep. All the research, you know, if your sleep goes... Everything else is a ripple effect <laughs> from your sleep. Once you lose sleep, you are really scrabbling up the wall trying to get yourself into that happy place. So I knew that I had to sort out sleep and I knew that I had to stay connected. And that, those two bits, all the research I read around sleep and staying connected to people, whether that's small connections or bigger connections, I knew that withdrawing, going into my own mind would be the wrong thing to do. So I changed my lifestyle based on trying to get as much sleep as I possibly could. You know, I, I reviewed how many evenings I was working while I was out. I reviewed what I was eating and drinking as well, reduced alcohol because that really made a difference, I think. And I'm, I'm vegetarian, but I had to properly, you know, work out how I cooked so that I was getting magnesium and vitamin D. Those are the two crucial ones and omega-3. So I did a sort of full body MOT to make sure I was in the best position to move myself forward. And these things do make a difference. And I think they help you switch your mindset into a positive. We always talk on the podcast about adding in. So a lot of times when women feel they're overwhelmed and lost and in, in a place they can't help themselves, they feel they need to start being healthier. So I'll eat less sweets. I'll do less of this. I'll, I'll deprive myself of that. Actually, add in a glass of water first thing in the morning. Just do that for two weeks. You're going to feel better. You know, add in going to bed 10 minutes earlier just do that for two weeks, you're going to feel better. So I started to add it in slowly rather than seeing it as kind of extreme measures. Yeah. And that feeds in, I think, to the sort of having an abundance mindset rather than a scarcity mindset, which in turn just hopefully helps with your mood. Because I think, again, as you said, there is that wave of depression that hits so many women in the perimenopause. And it just actually to deprive yourself then of things that actually yeah. give you pleasure, it seems to be a double whammy. It's not logical. And it's really unhelpful. And it's about sort of mothering yourself a little bit, thinking at the beginning of the day, what would I need today that would make me feel 
happier and healthier. Maybe I just need to go out for 10 minutes at lunchtime and, and get out some fresh air. Maybe I'll just do that instead of thinking I must go for a run or I must go to the gym. Maybe just 10 minutes walking will change my mindset, will bring me that positivity. I think we have raised the voice around menopause and perimenopause, and that is brilliant, but a lot of it is negative. So I think we have to be really mindful of the language we use around ourselves and the language we use around aging and those ideas that we buy into because the language is quite negative. You know, there's a lot of positive things you can do in midlife and using a kinder, softer language around yourself. You know, menopause is terrifying sometimes, but in other times it's quite freeing and liberating. So if you, we use words like magnificent and liberating, just these tiny switches of language around ourselves, I think make a real difference. I started doing something which I'm, I'm not a big fan of the woo-woo, but almost every expert said you're going to have to do some journaling, which I just thought, well, that's ridiculous. Why, why would I do journaling? I'm a, I'm a journalist. It's what I do. All I do all day is write. The last thing I want to do in the evening is write. But I realized that when you look back on what you've written about how you feel, you can be quite negative about yourself and you can have this kind of inner voice that's a bit unhelpful. So if you just start using more positive language around yourself and looking for the positive words around what we go through in midlife, that can be helpful as well, I think. How did you cope with being a mum and communicating? You've spoken about the importance of communicating what you're going through to your children and to your husband. What advice would you have for women on that level? Because I think there is, like we alluded to, so much shame and stigma around the menopause. And what advice would you have to for women and what was your experience of doing that? I think you have to realise you're in a period of enormous change and change is really difficult for everybody. So you have to ask for help. So you can't withdraw. You've got to accept that you're probably a little bit more vulnerable physically and mentally. So you need some help. You need people to help you at home. But you also need your children. I think particularly my daughters, I felt they needed to know what I was going through because it was... Um, you know, it can be a little bit frightening for young minds. You know, the adult brain is built during teenage years. So you, you, don't, you don't want to be not telling the truth about what you're feeling and what you're going through. That's not great role modeling either. I mean, you don't want them to see everything because you don't want to terrify your children or cause them extreme distress because they've got a lot on board being teenagers. But it is good, I think, to share what you're going through and to ask them if they have any questions and to ask them what their expectations might be of you at that point when you might not be you know, in your full magnificent self, you might be a little bit of a shadow of who you are, you might be overwhelmed. And I think it really is about asking your partners and the other older family around you if they they can help and asking your friends if they can help and talking about it and being a little understanding of other people going through it as well. I mean, I, I often think you can say, you need to be in a place saying, I need that space and time for myself without having to give a great long excuse because I'm doing this, this and this and I'm blah, blah. And you don't need to say any of that. You need to be in a place where people understand you might need some support. So you just want to ask for the support or you just want the time or you want to be able to not do all the things that you had done before. I certainly got worked out how I could get people to help me in that time when I was just crumbling a bit and I wasn't remembering things and I wasn't able to do, you know, I would say to my husband, I cannot now do all of this. I'm going to need a bit of this help here and you're going to need to be more involved here. I think realising that and, you know, you put your oxygen mask on for yourself first and then you can be helpful for everybody else. I realised also that I, I had found a hobby among all the things I tried to kind of regulate the moods, uh, which really was incredibly good for me, which was cold water 
swimming, which I've been doing, had been swimming outside for ages, but the colder it got, the better I felt. So, you know, there is some science to it. It's still being researched, but, you know, some people, it is particularly helpful. I found it particularly helpful and the community around the cold water swimming. So for me, it was important that my family understood that I would have to take time to do things like that. And then I would be able to look after them better. But I think, you know, we all just have to be honest about what we're going through so that everyone understands it while we're not asking them to solve the problem we're just saying these are my feelings at the moment and there's a really I wrote a parenting teenagers book and there's a really good piece of advice I got from a therapist in that about rupture and repair ruptures within families are not as important as repairs within families so the teenage years are quite tricky for parents it's hard that separation and I had worried so much about the arguing but actually what I needed to learn was how to repair it because the next day is the really important bit everybody argues everybody falls out there's always going to be problems with teenagers because they're testing everything but how you repair it is really really important so once I'd made that switch as well it made home life a bit easier. How did you balance having such a high-flying career when you were going through such a tricky period? Did you communicate it to the people you were working with? Did you sort of live in a shame, a cloud of shame and just try and hide it away? Because I can imagine that was incredibly challenging, juggling all those balls. Before I started to sort of unravel, I didn't find that juggling for me, that was just a matter of organization, having the right people around me, the right paid for childcare, the right contract that allowed me to leave at the times I need. I was very specific about that with my work. I mean, maybe unusually so. I was, you know, these this is how it's going to work if I'm going to have children and work in this job. These are the ways it's going to be. This is going to be written down. It's going to be in the contract. So I had a quite organized place, but I had a really close relationship with my team at L and Sunday Times Style. So I maintained as much of a professional face as I could, but I did tell people that I wasn't quite myself <laughs> and that I would, you know, there were like moments when I would just need to, I certainly remember Elle, I had an amazing, uh, Lottie Jeffs was my deputy and she was phenomenally supportive on the days when we discussed, she would say, how is your creeping sadness today? What level are we at? And I'd say, well, I think I'm at a nine. She'd say, well, why don't we go for a little walk at lunchtime and maybe I'll do this and, and you can not do this this evening. So, I had a level where I let the team know and I, you know, and also made sure it didn't impact or, or create any more extra work for them. But I think really you have to review where you are at that stage of your career. And I think at home, I was as present as I, I could be for my teenagers because it's, you know, teenagers are harder than toddlers. And I don't say that lightly. I say that after five years of research and a number of nine best-selling book about it they are harder than toddlers it is harder work because they don't need to talk to you till 10 o'clock at night when you're exhausted (laughs) everything happens very suddenly and when they need you they need you immediately and when they need need you they need you and no one else so a toddler other people can step in and help it's a practical physical thing you know just in normal family life so I was very much needed by my teenagers so that was I tried at home to be present but I had they had to be aware that I wasn't at 100% I was once I was on HRT I I reviewed my priorities you know where did I need to be 100% probably with those teenage girls was where I needed to be 100% I could probably drop the ball a bit at work because it wasn't as important as, as them so it's that constant reviewing which is a bit exhausting as well if you don't take care of yourself I think Everybody manages in a different way. And I think 
women who are at home who have chosen to work at home and, and not go into an office that is really really hard for me I think that's the harder choice that's right with your face right in the inferno of, of parenting teenagers it's really tricky so all of us have worked I think in in a different way around it and put in loads of mecha I mean before I worked out that HRT was going to help me, I'd have a wall of post-its of things I had to do. And I would take the post-its off as I'd done them, stick them back because I couldn't sort of remember them in my mind anymore. So I'd have to put them down and color code them in different, you know, it was insane behavior really. But I don't think it was unusual. I think a lot of women (laughs) do that or they have other people around them who've got these big lists in their phone of all the things they've got to do and remember because you've got to remember what, what your parents need and where other relatives might need support. So it's quite a lot, but you just sort of get through, but you will get through better if you take moments for yourself and you you take stuff off the list that gives you time to rest. Would you say that you experienced an identity crisis at any point during those moments and and feeling that, okay, I I can't operate on the level that I maybe used to? And when when you have to sort of take things off the table and say, okay, that's beyond my capability, when you say to your deputy editor, okay, that's too much for me, how did you manage those feelings? Well, that's a good question, I think, because I think most midlife women are going through a little shake in their identity of who they are because you're physically changing, your body changes, your face changes, you're changing at home because you're not parenting small children anymore, you're, you are less visibly a parent because you're not surrounded by younger, smaller children, they've gone, the, the children that you're parenting, so. <laughs> and you're, you have time in that space to work out who you are. And I think with your, you know, when you're not the same person at work, you do have an identity crisis. But I think it happens to everybody at this stage of life. I think we all come to a place where we think, is this the person I want to be or who am I now? And that's a, they call it the fertile void. That's a transitional space, that a liminal space that we're all in at this stage of life. Men as well, working out who we are and who we could be probably because we know we don't have as much time left as we've already had. So we become very aware of the time running out issue. And we are ever more aware of it because people around us, uh, we lose people around us, you know, they, they die, close friends die, colleagues die. So you, when you start to realise that sense of your own mortality, it is going to shake your identity. So I think also the important thing in that is not in t- to rush into who you think you want to be next because it's not clearly defined ahead of you as it as it was perhaps before. It's not ever present and visible. What could be next? What could be your next job? What could be your next? You, you might not want to do another job. I interviewed a lot of women in the book who had thought that what they wanted to do was stop their big careers or you know, once their children left home were to go back into big careers. And actually, there was a a woman who'd been phenomenally successful and thought she was going to travel the world. And on the day she was due to leave, she decided that she didn't want to do that at all. What was she thinking? She wanted to stay at home. She retrained as a lawyer, worked pro bono within her community and started fostering puppies. So her whole identity was based on what she thought she wanted to do. And actually, at the time, that wasn't what she wanted to do at all. And she bravely decided she wasn't going to do that at all and you know sometimes your identity is changes forced upon you you might get made redundant or or you might decide that you have to stay home to look after elderly parents so we all go through that so we do need to take a bit of a moment to let those feelings process through us I think you know not to rush into the next thing to let the feelings percolate so that you can analyze what might be useful for you to do next to make you happy it just struck me that 
lots of people's marriages seem to break down at that mark where it's you the think- highest divorce rate 45 to 49 yeah and it's the highest uh suicide rate for women as well 45 to 49 so and for men so it's a very very difficult stage of life if you don't know it's coming if you don't know that lots of different new feelings will be thrown up lots of challenges will occur i think we always we're always better if we can prepare for it aren't we if we know what's coming towards us we can be slightly more helpfully inclined to sorting ourselves out and being a little bit mindful of women around us who might be going through it i remember sitting i was getting changed by a lake (laughs) there was a a couple of ladies next to me chatting and one of them said i just don't know what's the matter with me i'm going to give up my job no one's listening to me at work i feel awful all the time she said i'm 48 i'm going to be 50 soon i just feel i'm in the worst possible place i could ever be i don't really know who i am and I said to her, you're perimenopausal. That's what you are. And she said, well, what does that even mean? But if we, ha- if she had known that, she could be having a conversation based on, I wonder if I'm perimenopausal. I wonder if these things will help me. I wonder if I don't have to leave my job and perhaps I can do something different. Or, you know, maybe I could work three days a week. Maybe I could leave at four o'clock and then I'd be able to go and do something I liked for an hour that would stop me feeling this way. So it's <laughs> if you know it's coming... If you're talking about it, knowing it's coming, then it's you can be a little bit more prepared for it, I think. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. What would you say were the worst years during the perimenopause and does it get easier throughout the menopause and as you find your stride and the HRT is working, what do you think would you say was sort of the worst bit? I mean, I know prior to taking HRT, it was obviously mm. really bad, but did it go up and down? I think the worst bit uh, for anyone will be dealing with change. Change is the single hardest thing I think um, we deal with as humans, unpredictability. But as you get older, you realize that every day is unpredictable, <laughs> that there is no guaranteed moment. And you, you do, and it sounds very trite to say, you do begin to live more in the present because you realize, particularly if you lose people suddenly, that it's not a given that the whole of this day is going to be mine and I will make it to the end in the same happy, jolly place. I don't know what's going to happen. So I might as well make the most of this bit that I'm dealing with now and i i interviewed women in their 60s 70s and 80s for the book and every single one without fail said i am the happiest i've ever been this is a much better place and and i interviewed women from all backgrounds diverse backgrounds and women in extreme circumstances dealing with quite big tragedies some of them and they all said i now i am in a happier better more stable place now than i was in my late 40s and early 50s so it comes at different times for people and obviously you know i'm just talking about the normal life normal women going through normal things so i feel like now that I've learned a sense of myself in the present moment, I am much happier and more stable because to be completely sidetracked by something like that was, and it was such a shock for me. And, you know, and I wasn't really dealing with anything other than just my wife, my life and my family. It must be awful, awful for women who've got 
other things going on or women working in environments, extreme environments. I had a friend who was a nurse in A&E and it was her perimenopause was, was the worst thing. She was trying to go through it while dealing with top to toe in all the PPE gear in COVID. That's just the worst possible place to be. So I think, you know, I've come out the other side of it and, and it is a happier, more stable place, but only because I know myself a bit better, not because anything else has changed. You you can really only deal with your inner self, I think, and, and get happy and comfortable with that because you have absolutely no guarantee that your environment and what's going on around you will be stable and not constantly changing and not filled with quite dramatic things because midlife is filled with quite dramatic things sometimes. And as you say, I think if you you do take it as a moment of reprocessing and absorbing actually what you learn about yourself during the perimenopause, you do come out as a more self-assured, more confident woman. Because people who I think shy away from it and try and run away from it and don't accept that maybe they are going through a bit of a life change and a change in gear, that's when it must perpetuate the misery and and the sadness. And And I think if you embrace it more, once you get out the other side, it can actually be quite liberating. I think you have to go through the misery and the sadness as well. I mean, it's not, it really is not for the faint hearted midlife. <laughs> it's quite a challenge, <laughs> but you have to feel all the feelings. And the only way you can do that is if you soften a bit, you feel a bit more vulnerable and you explore a bit more about who you are as a person. And you recognize where you might need help and, and where you can help others. There's something about being connected to, you feel connected to something bigger than yourself as you age. And I think allowing that to be part of your like you become less me centered, I think is how it could be described. And as long as you stay connected to that feeling of, you know, there is something bigger than all of us. I'm not talking about religion because I'm not at all religious, but that there is this kind of collective humanity and kindness around us. That is helpful to feel those feelings, I think, and to realize that not every day is a given. Certainly as we get older and older, you you really, I spoke to a woman in her late 80s whose family had been through huge generational trauma. Her grandparents had been in the Holocaust. And she said, we really know every day isn't a given because I get the phone calls every day from friends who've lost their partner, you know, they're in their 80s. It's hard. She said, so, but I am very happy. She said, because I'm living very much in this moment. So there's much to be learned, I think, from the women who are further down the road from us. And just to take it as, as logically, how can I learn from that? And how can I stay more connected and, and be a bigger part of my community around it? Absolutely. And I think that's why voices like yours are so important, because particularly for younger women like myself and the generation below me who might not have mothers who are so open about their struggles and, and their aren't as in touch with their emotions, it's incredibly helpful to have mentors and people whose voices you respect and you listen to. And, and with your book, You're Not Alone, it's very educative, not just for women who are in the perimenopausal phase or out the other side of the menopause. It's actually incredibly useful for younger women. I think the other thing that I always speak to younger women about when I talk to schools and when I talk to younger women I've worked with is we can do hard things. So you will be anxious in your life. We will all have anxiety. There's a difference between anxiety and clinically diagnosed anxiety. But we will all go through quite bad times and suffer quite big tragedies. That's an absolute given in all of our lives. So to get yourself mentally prepared and strong I mean, I hate the word resilient because I think it's a bit meaningless, that phrase, actually. 
it's okay to not be resilient and feel really sad. <laughs> it's okay to feel absolutely like you don't want to get up this morning or deal with any of this and to loathe the bit, that moment of life that you're in. So I think sometimes we avoid it slightly. We think that we shouldn't feel anxious. We shouldn't feel down. We shouldn't feel any of these things. We can feel them and we can come through the other side and it won't be like this forever it will only be like this for this day perhaps and we've just this if you don't feel that down you're never not going to feel the up and I did a lot of work with I'm um, actually with Shout I trained as one of the volunteers for Shout and um, I wrote a piece on it I interviewed a lot of the adolescent mental health experts here and in the states about it and this avoidance of anxiety or sadness or depression or daily depression of a down mood a low mood is not healthy because you, if you don't learn how to deal with that, you, you don't value and appreciate the other side. It's perfectly normal as a human to have lots of different moods and to feel all of that. And I think if you can feel all of that, when your mood is off, really badly off, then you'll know it rather than feeling that you, you, you know, there is a level of happiness we need to attain all the time. That's not physically possible. It's good to feel quite down sometimes and to learn to deal with those feelings and feel those feelings they're not bad feelings I think if you know that again when you hit the properly bad feelings when you need to get medical support then you'll be able to recognize that in a better way that's the message I hope that some younger women will get that you know you are going to feel this up and down and up and down and and sometimes the downs are going to be quite bad yeah I couldn't agree more and I often say you know it's like your mood's like the weather and it can be sunny one minute and it can be boring with rain the next or you can have two days of really stormy dark clouds and and feel horrible but you have to have trust that it will change but as you said it's the importance of sitting with it and not fighting it and actually learning to manage it because as we mm. know with the curve of anxiety it peaks and then it has to you know at some point abate and you will be left feeling calmer but when it's peaking yeah. it, it feels pretty unbearable and horrible yeah and, and you, you, if you can pick up some regulatory skills along the way to help regulate your mood those are quite useful aren't they and they are very basic things like being outside for a little bit they're you know finding something that you can get completely lost in drawing writing all of these small things that we push aside and think are not important are actually really important and I know that from watching being able to change children's moods with those small things you know and, and we just forget that as an adult it's really you know there's some of those creative moments are really important in regulating moods and helping people find a skill to regulate their moods yeah and it can seem like a real chore at times but it does it reinforces those neurons that say okay there are bits in my day that do bring me joy and are positive and it, I, I used to look back with this sort of either these really dark glasses or rose tinted glasses there's never a sort of oh it was a bit colorful and there were some ups and some downs it's that great way of like looking at photographs and thinking god I was in such a great headspace there it was so magical it was amazing and you're like actually no it wasn't all amazing yeah, there's an element of rituals that we miss sometimes, certainly in adolescent mental health. So things like having a meal with your family or playing a certain card game or uh, listening to a certain piece of music, those rituals are very neurologically soothing and it's quite easy to create them in groups. So this connectedness is very important and having rituals, small, tiny things that happen at the same time all the time to look forward to there's a you know I, I worry about the kind of loneliness epidemic in this country and someone offered some advice advice on our podcast the other day saying if you go to the same cafe every day and have a cup of tea and the staff get to know you 
and you sit in the same place and maybe some of the other customers get to know you. That tiny ritual is so neurologically good for you. It's better than going to the gym. It's better than doing all the things we think they're going to make our health. So those little rituals, I think, help boost positivity because you at least have that. It's quite a good mood enhancer. And I think all those tiny things we perhaps, you know, cooking food for people, eating at the same time, smiling at people when they get on and off the bus, all of that kind of thing, we really do dismiss. And it's actually, I think, really important for people, especially for people going through more severe mental health challenges. You've also alluded to this endurance mindset, which I think is really important to address that so many women feel they need to keep going, achieve more, juggle all these balls. How can we soften that approach and make women just more aware that it's okay just to be mediocre and just plod along? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's quite a strange thing for a Gen X woman to say because our mindset with that, I'm hoping I'm not generalizing, our mindset has been very much achieve, 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 do this and do this, do that and do that, have this and have this. So it's an almost alien thing to say, I did it, but it was only maybe 80% as good as I wanted it to be. But I think that's a bit of a learning curve for me personally. I've probably had more of a achievement mindset. You know, I left school at 16, so I I felt very firmly that I needed to prove myself. And actually, what I would say about the endurance mindset is it's pretty enjoyable at times when it's going well and you're winning awards and, you know, everything is balanced and everything is working. It's like being, I don't know, I suppose it's a bit like being an athlete of some sort. You're you're in a team, you've got it all together, you've done this great thing, you've all pulled together and made it work. It's great that, and you can just keep going. It is a little addictive, I think, and it perhaps it's not great filling your nervous system with cortisol but it is exciting and that is great but there comes a point when it's too much and it's not good for you for your health I mean it certainly I think contributed to my lack of sleep you know to be running a a magazine parenting for children writing a weekly column and doing talks and having a podcast all of that that was too much I overachieved it was silly and it wasn't good for me and I and one of those things probably wasn't as good as it could have been because I was doing something else as well. And the thing I would have wanted to spend more time on would have been the family. So, but I don't have any regrets. I did, I worked within the bounds of what I'd learned in the society that I'd grown up in and then the industry that I was in. That was, you know, it's very enjoyable. And I had a really lovely time with the teams that I work with. But you can't keep going at that pace because you suddenly get to a point where you just can't deal with stress anymore, any stress. I remember booking a train ticket when I was at the peak of my stress and I booked the wrong train going to the wrong place on the wrong time. And the failure of it was so exhausting. I mean, I, I just cried for ages. It was, I was mentally completely overwhelmed. I was suddenly becoming incapable of dealing with anything going wrong or, you know, not turning up, missing 10 minutes for parents evening or my reaction to it was, was not proportioned to the event than the stress that it was causing. And at that point I realized I was doing too much and I probably had to step back and not do that much and reevaluate my life based around it. What do you do now to manage your sleep? Do you have a really specific sort of evening routine? Well, I, I do and I don't because I had um, throughout my whole ridiculously busy career and parenting, I mean, the early years aside when they never slept and nobody ever slept in our house. I was a, an Olympic sleeper. I mean, you could say to me at two o'clock in the afternoon, can you go and have a two-hour nap? And I would be, be able to just sort of close my eyes and go to sleep. I would be able to go to bed at 10 o'clock and wake up at eight o'clock 
without even knowing the night had passed. It was like a general anaesthetic for me. It was just, I mean, I, it was just clearly physiologically how I was made. But when I went through perimenopause and I lost my sleep to the horrific sweating and the terrors and all of that, and then it came back with on HRT, but it's never really been the same. So stress really does take my sleep away. So I, the, I mean, the body always tells the story of the mind, doesn't it? So I will have weeks of chronic sleeplessness and then weeks go where I'm fine again. And it will often be related to my worries and my fears and what's going on. But things that help, magnesium helps, has, has really helped me. Making sure that I get enough exercise. And for me, physically, that's not, um, you know, enormously, you know, beasting yourself in the gym. For me, that's something every day. And that could be as small as a 20 minute run or a, a walk around the block with the dog or a 10 minute cold dip. You know, it's something all the time. I do a bit of weight training now because I'm worried about my bones, but, um, exercise is important. Reading is phenomenally important sometimes in, in life. You find the thing that was really, really important to you as a child and reading has come back to me. So I try to read every now and again and that seems to settle me and I get a better sleep when I've done that. And actually really annoyingly, the one thing that really helped my sleep, which was just so annoying because I didn't want to do it, was yoga. And I only found yoga because I was writing a piece on what a waste of time yoga was. And um, turns out it's not. <laughs> turns out it's really good for you and uh, very helpful and I did some what they call the yin yoga which is the very slow one where you just hold a pose for five minutes and sort of seemingly lie around on the floor phenomenal sleep after I do something like that so <laughs> I just experimented a bit with the things that would help me sleep but what I did learn from an insomnia expert is that if you aren't asleep in the middle of the night get up go and do something don't try and force sleep just change you know, go to bed a bit later so you're tired. All the stuff that we'd been taught that actually I'd been guilty of putting in magazines like Cosmo and Elle about, you know, don't change your routine, don't go out of your bedroom, all of that. Get up, move around, don't catastrophize. All that stress that's in your head, write it down before you go to sleep to put it in another place so it's not trying to be processed in your mind at the same time. So it's a kind of ongoing experiment. Sometimes I'll sleep really well, and but I, I'm never in that place I was when I was going through the perimenopause, which was just horrific. So, I mean, and sleeplessness is just, I think it's the killer for, it's the thing that's going to make you most ill physically compared to anything else. But the stress of worrying about whether you'll get sleep as well is quite traumatic, I think. And I think most 90% of the women we've had as guests on the podcast have all said, when I lost my sleep, that's when it all started to fall apart. So I try and do those things. You know, I do find the cold water, cold showers very helpful. I do sleep better after that. Finally, Lorraine, I'd love to ask you how you think we can educate men around the menopause and actually what we can do to raise their awareness about how to deal with partners, how to deal with employees um, or colleagues whatever it is, I feel that there is a lot of work that needs to be done in that area. I think there is. And I think it's a real shame because, you know, every man is, has a mum, every man has daughters, you know, we, we, every man has male, female colleagues. As with any health issue, just knowing someone is going through it and knowing the language to use is helpful, not to be using this dreadful derogatory 
weird humor we have around hot flushes and all of that denigrating women and patronizing women is not useful. I mean, men go through mental health crisis at, at midlife as well. So, you know, if we're going to be understanding about that, we need everybody to be talking about what people are going through as they enter that stage of life. And having workplaces to have proper policies that mean women get access to HRT if they need it or directed to resources that will help them get access to HRT. We need GPs to take it seriously. Some do, some don't. And we need to be able to talk about it out loud without it making us seem weaker than we are, because we're not saying this means a whole ton of women over the age of 40 are more tricky to employ. We just need more information out there, I think, in a more positive um, health-based language around it and less emotional derogatory language around it. But we just need to be talking to men about it. I think that's the main thing and, and letting men understand. I did a book signing in um I think it was in Cornwall and it was the biggest queue I've ever had because I'm from Cornwall. So, and it was the first time I'd had men in the queue get buying the book for me to sign. And this lovely man came and said, I just, this is it. This is what's going to happen. I don't know what's going on. She won't talk to me about it. I don't know how to talk to my colleagues at work about it because I can clearly see women going through this. I'm just going to get them all a copy of the book and just hand it to them and then they can read it and then they can get some help. But so we need a bit more of men as we do in all walks of life, men understanding that true equality is understanding both what everybody needs in terms of support, and that can be financially, (laughs) mentally, physically, and emotionally, can't it? Absolutely. Well, and that's where your book, You're Not Alone, is going to hopefully fill a void that needs filling. (laughs) I hope so. Lorraine, thank you so much for your time. It's been, yeah, such an interesting and really educative conversation and i really really look forward to yeah getting feedback about what listeners think thank you very much pandora thank you for listening to this episode of the hurt to healing podcast i'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our hurt to healing instagram at hurt to healing pod you might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation So please spread the word. Mm